0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. Welcome back to Body Justice. We are on episode 45 of season three. Sorry, 45 total, episode three of season three. Um, I am so excited today. We're going to be talking about failed eating disorder care in America, how managed care fails sufferers with Dr. Rebecca Lester, who is an anthropologist, a psychotherapist, an author. She is just awesome. She's also an eating disorder survivor herself, and she got into this field to learn the nuances of why treatment is just not working in the US. It's really, really, really interesting. She has a book, Famished, which I always recommend to people. She'll tell you more about it, and I'll let her introduce herself. Um, I know I'm just coming in hot with all the nuanced conversations um, this season, but I hope you all are enjoying it and having thoughtful discussions and reflections about needed changes in the eating disorder field. And it's okay if we all have, you know, differing opinions. I just think it's so important, you know, in order for this field to change and grow for the better to bring these conversations to the surface. So Before we get started, quick announcement. As always, you can find me on Instagram at bodyjustice.therapist. You'll probably see I've had a lot of just um, awesome offerings going on this fall. I guess two main big ones, not a lot. Um, We just had our wonderful abolitionist crisis response training, which was so fun. We have part two coming up. Probably going to be offering this um, multiple times a year with my co-host, Dr. Jenny Wong Hall, which you all probably know if you follow me too. Um, And we are starting our Eating Disorder Providers Liberatory Consultation Group, which is going to be a six-week cycle where you will get 30 minutes of teachings on different social justice topics that relate to the eating disorder field, and then 45 minutes of case consultation. So if you're a provider in the field and you want to grow in your liberatory framework, this is for you. Um, Be ready to bring your cases, be ready to get in community, have difficult conversations, all topics are welcomed and we're really excited to see you there. So you can um, go to my link in bio on Instagram or Jenny's and apply there. I'll also put the link in the show notes of this podcast. We are so thrilled. So but without further ado, let's get started with Rebecca. Rebecca. <music> Rebecca, can you tell us a little bit about you and what you're passionate about?
1: Sure, well, I am a professor of anthropology um, and I'm also a licensed clinical social worker with a private practice where I specialize in eating disorders among other things. And I've been involved in eating disorder research and practice for the past 25 years or so. Um, So I'm definitely passionate about that. I'm passionate about helping people better understand what eating disorders really are and what they're not, and all the kind of received information that we have that it just misses the mark. So I'm really passionate about getting the word out um, about that and helping to write some of the injustices that have come from that. But I would say in general, I'm, I'm super passionate about anthropology. I'm a big anthropology nerd. Um, so anything that has to do with, with culture and experience, um, and I'm really drives me because I think, you know, a lot of things that we think are kind of natural or just the way the world is, is not just the way the world is. And that means it's something that can change. So I'm really passionate about that.
0: That's really cool. And you have such a unique lens being both a therapist and anthropologist, um, which, yeah, I really want to pick your brain about just like how that informed how you went about like studying eating disorders. Um, I think that was something really fascinating in your book about how you talked about how you started out as an anthropologist. Right. And then kind of in true anthropological spirit, you got in the system to, to really see what's going on. Um, can you tell us how you got interested in the field of eating disorders specifically?
1: Sure. Well, it came out of personal experience. You know, I, um, had a history of eating, have a history of eating disorders beginning at age 11. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was in treatment for anorexia when I was 11. Um, And then again, when I was 18, Um, and then struggled really for many years after that, doing outpatient work and things like that. But um, even when I was 11, I remember thinking, you know, there's got to be some better way of doing this there just has to be a better way. And I, you know, I'm a kid. I don't know what that is, but like something doesn't work with this approach. And so i have been interested in it, you know, over the years from that perspective. And then as I got involved in anthropology um, I started to get really curious about what the field of anthropology might be able to bring to the conversations that are going on about eating disorders. And if that might open up some new ways of thinking about things.
0: Wow. And at the time, were there any like anthropological studies going on with eating disorders?
1: At the time that I started in anthropology? um, Not at the time. There are some, a few other anthropologists who work on eating disorders now um, that have done some really great cool stuff that we can talk about if we have time. Um, But at the time, no, there wasn't nothing. In fact, when I wanted to study it for my dissertation, my, uh, the graduate advisor, um, in my department said, nobody cares about eating disorders, except nurses. Why do you want to study that? <laughs> so I was really pushed away from it as a dissertation topic, mm-hmm. well, which is part of why I came back to it later.
0: Why do you think that is, why was, is, do you think that has anything to do with the stigma of eating disorders? I
1: do. And I think it's just, you know, plain ignorance, um, and which is pervasive, you know, ignorance about how big of a problem it is. I think there's a misperception that it's, you know, just a small portion of the population that deals with it or just a, you know, upper class white young women who deal with it. There's all these misperceptions that lead people to dismiss it as the serious problem that it really is.
0: Mm -hmm. So with that kind of dual background, being a therapist, I mean, actually triple background of being a survivor, therapist, anthropologist, how has that shaped your view of eating disorders?
1: Yeah, it's it's radically shaped it. In fact, when I, when I first started to write the book, um, I was trying to write it as a straight anthropology book um, and realized that was impossible for me to do without also talking about my personal history to some extent, um, because it is so relevant to how mm-hmm. I view them. Um, and I think, so each of those kind of positions um, Lead, it's like a different, kind of a different level of inquiry. So like as a, as a survivor, you know, everybody's story is different, but I do have a sense of what it's like to have an eating disorder
2: mm-hmm. and to
1: go through treatment and some of the, the, the feelings and the experiences and the the confusion and the, you know, fear and all the stuff that goes into that and how hard it is, yeah. <laughs> it was not an adjective, how really, really hard it is to do that. So being a survivor helped me, I think, have insight into what I was seeing in the clinic from a slightly different perspective than if I had not had that experience Um, as an anthropologist that gives me tools and methods for thinking about culture and thinking about bigger, you know, the bigger context of things and how that shapes the way that people are behaving um, and interacting with each other, how a clinic functions as a microculture. So that gave me that tool. Um, and then as a, as a therapist, I was able to get, like you said, kind of inside the system, mm-hmm. to try to understand, you know, where's the disconnect, what is happening here? And what are the pressures on therapists as well as on clients that are causing this massive mess that we have? That's our eating disorder treatment situation.
0: Yes. That's what I loved about your book is it really took like this macro level perspective that I think so many of us that are, you know, doing this work. Working with clients one on one, it can be easy to forget about how these bigger systems are are playing into what's happening, both for providers and the clients, like you said.
1: Absolutely. And so much of what I saw that I talk about in the book is how those broader issues get kind of morphed into part of what people are attributing to the client. Mm-hmm. They're put on like, well, she's being difficult or he's being difficult or, you know, they're resisting or whatever the case may be when it's really these much bigger structural issues that are driving a lot of what's happening.
0: Yeah. So what are those big structural Mm -hmm. issues that are driving, you know, the failed care of eating disorders in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, there are a number of them. I would say the biggest one is that healthcare in the United States is a for-profit business. Mm Mm-hmm. And that has all sorts of consequences. If you are running a for-profit business, then you want to bring in more money than you pay out. And you want to find ways of paying out less money to bring in, you know, you want more profits. And there are shareholders and people who have a stake in these companies making money. Um, And so that leads, eating disorders are complex conditions. They're definitely complex. They are Expensive to treat because you need a multidisciplinary treatment team and, you know, sometimes you need medical care. Sometimes you need um, mental health care. Often you need both of those things together. So yes, they're complicated and they take a long time and, and they're expensive. So from a managed care perspective, the fewer eating disorders they treat for the shorter amount of time, the better.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So that is the biggest factor is that that all trickles down into the clinical situation and the relationships that that clinicians are able to form with, with clients and vice versa. And just how it plays out on the everyday level when you're in an atmosphere that artificially restricts their access to resources, Mm -hmm. it makes people act in ways that are not ideal.
0: Which is so parallel to the eating disorder itself, which is so much to do with restriction and getting the bare minimum.
1: Absolutely. It just reinforces that whole mentality of, you know, the less I take the better. If I'm just quiet and sit here in this corner and do what I'm told, then maybe things will be okay. But then of course that's not true. And so, you, you know, it just, it just reinforces a lot of the stuff that, People are being told they're supposed to get away from. And then when they're confused or it doesn't work, then they're the one, the clients are the ones who are often blamed. That's just not not wanting to get well.
0: Yeah. And so it's put all on this personal responsibility. Like it's your choice to recover. You're not choosing recovery. When we know that these are really complex illnesses, that it's beyond a choice. Absolutely. Um, Like. In your book, you talk about the double binds from both sufferers and providers. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that a little bit? What are those double binds that you know we all kind of get trapped in?
2: Yeah, there's a number of
1: them. I think for for clients, you know, there's there's this challenge of you, ha- in order to get insurance coverage, you have to demonstrate that you're sick enough mm-hmm. and you need treatment, but you can't be put, you know, in scare quotes, too sick or so sick that you're not complying with what the doctor's telling you to do, or they'll take the treatment away. Mm-hmm. It's like this, this very, very fine line that clients are expected to walk to demonstrate that you have a need and that you can benefit from the care when as we've said the care itself is really screwy in a lot of ways. So, you know, that puts clients in this pretty impossible position because the reason people are going to treatment is that they are struggling and they need help. Yeah. And, you know, that to put that kind of responsibility on the client to like fit this very narrow uh, picture of what's acceptable is just ridiculous and we don't do that for other conditions. So, mm-hmm. That's the key one for the clients. And then for the therapists, you know, they are also caught in this system where, from my experience, a lot of the therapists that I saw and that I worked with genuinely care about their clients and do want to do a good job. They care about people getting well. And at the same time, their hands are tied. Their resources are limited. They are told, you know, you have seven days for this client, so you better figure out what you're going to do with those seven days. And try to get them ready to be discharged when, of course, everybody knows that person's not well and they're mm-hmm. going to go out and struggle some more. So the, the, it's really challenging for the therapist, I think, to stay to keep their morale up when they they know that they're kind of participating in the system. But it's the, the only one that we have.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's really their only option if they want to try to help at all.
0: Yes, it's so heartbreaking. I used to work in residential centers um, Mm -hmm. for general mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes we would get clients with eating disorders too. And it was that constant battle of fighting insurance. Um, And unfortunately, a lot of times pressure was put on the clients because the reality was, is this is how many days we have approved. And And then sometimes, you know, well, often we would do like try to do like single case agreements, appeals, Mm -hmm. but then every day the client is just on edge, not knowing, am I going to be here tomorrow? You know?
1: Right. Right. And how are you supposed to do any significant therapeutic work when that's hanging over your head all the time?
0: Right. And eating disorders themselves, you know, I've never, ever, ever had a client recover in 28 days, (laughs) you know, like that just does not exist. So how are, you know, yeah, it's like, why are we trying to force this short-term model on these conditions that are, that are much more chronic? That's right. There's yeah. so many layers to them.
1: So many layers. And I mean, I think so much of it is driven by, by the profit thing, but also by the way we think about illness in our, mm-hmm. in our country, it's all kind of bound up together, right? That the, that we divide things into medical and you know, mental health or behavioral health. And those are two different things that often have two different pots of money in your insurance plan. And you know we we just have this this difficulty in understanding complexity. Mm-hmm. And so you know it boils things down to what is their weight doing? What are their labs say? How stable are their vitals? And once that's stabilized, and most of the time insurance companies are like, well, they're stable. They can be discharged now. And then of course we don't have good continuity of care in our country. So often that means people just don't have anything Mm -hmm. or they might have once a week therapy if they're lucky.
0: Mm -hmm. Which is also hard, right? Because to find a specialized eating disorder provider is pretty dang hard. And most are not in network with insurance because insurance doesn't pay us well. That's right. It's so and it, it, what's interesting too, about those biomedical markers of recovery, mm-hmm. the vast majority of eating disorder sufferers will not have changes in labs or right. weight. Right. And so something really needs to change about how we define, you know, what is an eating disorder?
1: A hundred percent. Yes. Gosh. Yes. Because sometimes, you know, people, I saw plenty of times where people would be, in the clinic and they're following their meal plan. They're doing everything they're supposed to do and they are not gaining two pounds a week, which mm-hmm. is what insurance companies generally like to see two to three pounds a week. And it, it, it isn't happening for a variety of reasons because metabolism is, you know, all sorts of stuff can be why, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't really matter yeah, from the insurance company perspective. So even mm-hmm. if someone is doing everything they're supposed to do, they might still have their treatment cut short.
0: Which is dangerous too, because, you know, let's say someone's in a hypermetabolic state, they're mm-hmm. not gaining weight at the rate, even though they're following the meal plan. Um, and then insurance is like, well, you need to increase the meal plan. That can wreak havoc on someone's digestive system. Yes.
1: Yes. I see that so much of people just in so much pain and discomfort and, you know, not there's a psychological component of that, but there's a real physiological component. Of yeah.
0: That and that as well. It, intensifies the psychological part. It's exactly. like my body's rejecting this. So why would I, it feels so counterintuitive to do what your team's telling you. Yes. Yes. And these managed care providers, they don't often have like knowledge of eating disorders. What is going on with that?
1: Yeah. They don't often have specialized knowledge. I, you know, they, they may know a little bit and they can pull out the DSM just like anybody else and look at the criteria and stuff, but Um, having specialized training and that these are different sorts of illnesses than other mental health illnesses, not, not that, you know, and each of those also have, has their own, you know, things that people need to understand, but there is something different about eating disorders because of the medical and psychological components of it. Um, and you, yeah, they, they're not trained for that. Mm -hmm. Most of them are not trained for that.
0: And what about the stakeholders of these big for-profit centers? Are they trained in eating disorders? Or are they typically just, you know, people looking to make money?
1: Well, recently, it's interesting that you bring up stakeholders because I'm sure, as you know, that, you know, recently there's been over the past, you know, five or 10 years, this move towards these big kind of conglomerates, buying up a lot of treatment centers, not just eating disorders, but other treatment centers as well. And my understanding is, no, they don't know anything. It's not about... What the condition is for them, it's like, how can we make money now? The people who work there, we hope, have specialized training, but not the owners.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: oftentimes, yeah,
0: even the therapists, um, in you know, higher levels of care, usually they are, and this is not to bash unlicensed clinicians at all, but typically they are new clinicians that's that true, gaining experience, and um sure that so many of them have the best hearts and are wonderful. And like, this is a serious condition that does require such specialized training and experience. So it makes you wonder too, like, you know, well, I mean, it has so much to do with the setting. Once you become licensed, you're not going to stay in that system that's already burned you out. And um, you're not growing. You're not feeling like you're, in line with your values in terms of treating eating disorders, it's so complicated.
1: It is. And I think part of the reason so many people in training end up in kind of the eating disorder setting is that, as you say, a lot of people don't want to work with eating disorders for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons, but there's all this stigma and bias and all that. And the people who have been burnt out already on the system. So there's this vacuum. And so of course, trainees, that's a place you can go, but oftentimes it, yeah, it turns them off doing that work
0: mm-hmm. after they get licensed. Especially in the system. I wonder if the system was different, if that would, yeah. if that would change.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, it's like these double binds that providers and patients are in just kind of has everyone walking on eggshells.
1: It does. It does. It's It's a very tense, you know, on top of the fact that you've got people who are struggling and trying to stay alive, mm-hmm. all this other layer of tension and anxiety going on.
0: Absolutely. Um, You talk about, too, like the good patient prototype that treatment centers create. Can you tell us about that and just how that negatively impacts one's recovery?
1: Sure. So, you know, part of that comes from the managed care kind of framework um, about what a good patient is in general, in terms of being somebody who's got a definable set of symptoms that um, is, willing to follow doctor's orders does what they're supposed to do gets well in the defined amount of time and leaves and has a happy life. Like that's the ideal, right? Mm
2: -hmm. And then
1: in the eating disorder setting that can, you know, be compounded by not only they're supposed to do what they're supposed to do, but they should not push back. They should not complain. They should, you know, any of those things that, that somebody might say, Hey, wait a second, this is not working for me or, you know, this is not fair that this happened gets folded into like, well, that's your eating disorder talking mm-hmm. and dismissed. So there's not really a way for clients to effectively push back against what's happening without it being pathologized.
0: Yes. And that bugs me so much because even if it's coming from an eating disorder part, there's a need there. There's an unmet need that deserves to be tended to with compassion.
1: Yes. Yes. And, you know, we can't, I think it's unfair and illogical to tell people that you're here to start to develop your sense of yourself and your sense of agency when we then turn around and punish that yes. in our daily
0: practice. It's not fostered. That self-trust mm-hmm. is absolutely not fostered in tra- traditional treatment centers. It's not, no. Um, yeah, and then it, it also makes me think about, you know, so many of our lovely, wonderful clients with eating disorders and ourselves as survivors, we thrive off of that praise of being the good one. Yes. Um, so that gets reinforced too, the, the people-pleasing parts of us, The it keeps our true self really hidden, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, absolutely. There's not much space for that.
0: No, in my outpatient work, I always, at a certain point, <laughs> often with clients, we talk about what's your inner rebel, like, oh, what I do love you that. want to do that, you know, you feel so inhibited by, and it's really fun to see how, when you kind of take away that, yeah, that mask of being the good one, which completely is a survival part of all of us, but to see them emerge as a full human who isn't just existing to, to please everyone else.
1: Oh yes. How powerful. Yeah.
0: It's really fun. Um, what do you wish was different then in terms of eating disorder treatment centers and how it's carried out in the U S
1: yeah, a couple of things. Some I think are, are, um, less realistic than others, but I'll just say, you know, you know, of course I would love for us to not have a for-profit healthcare system. I think that would be step number one. I, I, that's not likely to happen. Um, So within the confines of the system that we have, I think there's a couple things we can do. I think um, we have to, there has to be a better understanding of eating disorders as complex conditions that span these different domains of being, the the physical, the mental, you know, however you want to think about that. Um, We need better continuity of care. We've got to have something in between residential treatment and, you know, once a week therapy. Mm -hmm. And there are places that exist, you know, there are some transition houses and things, but they're, they're not very many of them. And they're Mm -hmm. not always covered by insurance. In fact, they're often not. So if we were to have a more robust kind of care sector, that would help. Mm
2: -hmm. Like if
1: we are not going to keep people in residential where they maybe need to be, then we need to give them other things to help support them in their journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that would help a lot. We need also much better training for clinicians, not just therapists and psychiatrists, but across the board, medical professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you how many times I have heard stories of clients who have gone to a medical doctor and been told something or had something done that was directly counter to what they've been working on or what the treatment team is been trying to do. And it comes from ignorance. It's not that these doctors want to harm somebody, Mm
2: -hmm. but it's
1: just pure ignorance. And that should not be the case given how prevalent eating disorders are in our society. So, um, beefing up the medical education around eating disorders would be another key piece.
0: I agree. I wish that was a requirement. I told Dr. Guardiani this. I wish that you, it was required for like all medical schools to have a full course by you just for eating disorders or doctors like her that really, speak to the nuances of it and, and the different, different ways that we need to a- approach eating disorders medically than other conditions. That's right. Yeah. So I see that all the time too, with my clients, medical doctors, I usually end up having to call and do advocacy and education yeah. to the providers, which yeah. isn't always well-received because right. they're like, okay, this therapist is, <laughs> you know, thinks they know more than me. Right. Um, it's so frustrating. Um, What do you wish providers understood about eating disorders?
1: Oh, so many things. I think one of the key things I wish providers understood, and they may not know this like in some level, but um, that I wish they really understood in a deeper sense is that when clients are acting in ways that are frustrating or confusing or seem to be counter to treatment, you know, all that kind of stuff that, that is often coming from a place of sheer desperation. It is not, at least, you know, anybody I've talked to, it's never been from a place of, "ha ha, ha how can I get away with this? Cause I just want to get one over on the therapist or I want to screw with the system or, you know, it's desperation and fear and, that most people want to get better. Mm -hmm. They want to get better. They just don't know how to do it. And they're not being afforded the frameworks that are going to help them get there.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. It's just kind of punitive. Well, like stop doing that thing. It's like, well, you know, I I wish that that providers understood and could help clients understand that the needs that they're expressing through their eating disorder are 100% legitimate. There is absolutely Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with wanting to be seen, wanting to be, you know, responded to as a full person, to have a voice, to have agency, these are good things. They are manifested through something that is harming them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, but to be able to see that, because there's a lot of attribution of intention mm-hmm. to clients, that is very negative, And that's, that's really detrimental to the whole process.
0: Totally. I wish, I wish providers understood that the food and body stuff is like the tip of the iceberg, you know, it's a metaphor for this inner landscape that is in so much pain. Um, And that hasn't often grown up in a way where that self-trust, that agency was that was um, fostered. So food becomes a way to communicate what's going on inside.
1: That's right. That's right. And people get so focused partly because of the managed care focus on weight and all that kind of stuff. It stays focused on that level a lot the food and the body and the weight stuff. And the whole other piece just is left not really tended to.
0: Exactly. And well, I don't know if you know much about like the systems of care in like, let's say, Europe or Canada, where I think things are less for profit. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that there's so many pitfalls there too. Do you know anything about that? And like, what's going on?
1: Not much. No, I would like to learn more because I've heard that as well, that it sounds like in theory, oh, well, they have socialized medicine or, or not, you know, different kind of healthcare system. So it must be better. But then I hear, well, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. So that would be really fascinating and important, I think, to understand why yeah. It's not, or in what ways it's not better, what ways it is better and kind of what's contributing to it still not really working
0: so well. Yes. So I'm going to need you to write a whole nother book on okay. that. I'm <laughs> okay. um, just kidding, but it would be really interesting to know. I, I hear that like, at least in the UK, the treatment that is prescribed is pretty much strictly CBT. Yeah. So I wonder if, if that has a lot to do with it too, just like not having long-term options for treatment, treatments that are going to get to the root, not just the symptoms. That's
1: right. You know, one other thing that I wish that providers knew or or attended to what could be different um, would be to recognize and acknowledge how screwed up the system is. Just name it. It is. And Mm -hmm. everybody knows that it, or most people know that it is. And so Talk about that, use that in the therapy as a way of exploring some of those issues around scarcity and restriction and, you know, what that feels like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, we, if we can't change the healthcare system, then let's figure out ways to use it productively, at least as best we can.
0: Yeah. And detach it from making the clients feel like it's their problem. That's right. That's um, right. really explaining to them. Like, this is the bind we're in. It's mm-hmm. like, we don't agree with this. This right. isn't your fault, right? You know, like taking that away instead of just. It's, I think you know in some treatment centers it's always it's also used. I think it's a motivator, like right. okay, insurance says you have seven more days. That that does not work.
2: No, no, it does not.
0: It's so punitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Since you've been in this field for so long and you know, you've know you been doing this work for 25 years, I really wanna know what you feel are some of the biggest kind of keys to lasting recovery.
1: Yeah, um, I've thought about this quite a bit. And of course it's different for everybody. Everybody has their own journey and, and all of that, but from I can talk about for me, what were keys anyway. Um, so one of them was to have a passion for a goal outside of the eating disorder and when you're in the midst of an eating disorder that may be very hard to envision Mm -hmm. Um, but trying to discover what that is I think is really important to to anchor have something to anchor you outside of the eating disorder and for me it was anthropology because like Mm -hmm. I said I'm a big nerd about it so for me that was a passion for my of mine I had um, a client who her passion was to go to medical school And even all throughout her eating disorder, that was her focus. And that really helped her to get through her recovery. It was a long process. It was very difficult for her. She is now in medical school. So, you know, that I think was very helpful for her. So finding something outside of the eating disorder, um, I think talking to people who have kind of come out the other side can be really helpful and say, you know, to be able to see like it is possible to lead a full life. And have a you know decently healthy relationship to food and your body, and you know that's possible, even coming from a place of being really um, ill and struggling. so mm-hmm. that that helped me. Um, and like I said before, I think learning to honor those that the needs at the heart of the eating disorder are are valid. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets invalidated so much, you know, in the language that often, percolates around control. Like they just want to have control or they just need a, one attention or whatever, you know, that kind of language just is so pejorative and it dismisses what these core needs really are that are absolutely valid. And so helping to kind of recognize that while at the same time, recognizing like the eating disorder is not, not working,
2: mm-hmm.
1: get those needs met in any kind of sustainable way.
2: Right.
1: So, you know, that's what needs to shift, but the needs themselves, you don't have to give up those needs to get okay. well.
0: I agree. Those are valid human needs we all yeah. need. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. Cause I've done a lot of thinking about that too. Like what really leads to lasting recovery and it, reflecting on myself and my client work and those anchors mm-hmm. having a passion outside of your eating disorder, which like you said, you may not know, you may not know in the grips of an eating disorder, but it can come with time. That's right. Um, Cause the eating disorder is sort of like an anchor, you know? So yes. finding other things, even if it's starting small, like I remember I like volunteered to work with pets and like dogs mm-hmm. and horses. Like I've always loved that. And then that branched out to like me discovering, oh, I actually really want to be a therapist. Yeah. Um, and whatever it is, it could be so many different things. And then also I think having safe, secure relationships, um, yes is so key. Having a sense of secure attachment that you feel like you are, you are seen, you are held, you're yes. good enough. Yes. And, and just having that foundation of safety, I really think is so important than any therapy modality.
1: Right, right. Oh yes. Yes. A hundred percent. And that can start from your relationship with your therapist or a yes. clinician of some sort, Um, because oftentimes people don't have that in their lives, which is part of the issue, but it can start it can start small and then you learn how to kind of look for that in other people and to know what it feels like and how to get
0: it. And know yeah. that it's, it's possible. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. My therapist was for sure. My first secure attachment and going to like support groups and stuff like that was, that was super helpful. Like being around other people going through the same thing and in non in non in non-judgmental space. Right. Yeah. Totally agree. Um, well, this was such a good conversation. Um, can you tell us where people can find you, check out your work, find your book?
1: Sure, sure. So I have I have a website which is um, www.rebeccalester.com. It's all one word. Um, so th- and that has links to all my you know my articles and the book and and all that kind of stuff. Um, and people can email me um, rjlester at wustl.edu. Feel free to reach out to me. I like awesome. to hear from people. Yeah.
0: And your book, Famished, is it available kind of on all book platforms?
1: Absolutely. Yep. You can get it Amazon, independent booksellers, you know, anywhere, anywhere books are sold, as they say.
0: (laughs) Cool. I tell everyone about your book. Like, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Let's stay in touch. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you so
1: much i you.